Welcome to the BGSM Podcast. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Dr. Mary O'Keefe about low back pain. Mary is a physiotherapist and a Marie Curie postdoctoral fellow. Mary was awarded her PhD in 2017, in which she examined multidimensional rehabilitation for the individual with chronic back pain. Mary's research now focuses on changing clinicians' behavior, improving diagnostic labels of low back pain, and communicating healthcare messages in the media. Mary, thank you for being on the podcast. Great to be on. From all of your talks and articles, I have learned that low back pain is the leading cause of disability globally, and that it is costing us billions of dollars every year. But you also claim that back pain is a normal part of life and is not a serious thing. Can you please explain? Yes, so this can be a hard message to get across. I guess what I mean by the leading cause of disability is we know that a lot of people suffer from back pain from time to time, and a lot of that back pain isn't very disabling beyond the short term. So we know that a lot of people get better. The problem is there's a small proportion of people, which turns out to be a lot of people because that's a a substantial minority of people that go on to have disabling symptoms and disability. But the issue is that currently we don't have very good treatments to address these forms of disability. And often we're not very good at knowing or pinpointing the reasons for why people have the pain and disability. But a problem that seems to happen is that we're very quick to apply an injury or tissue damage or pathology model to people when they have back pain for a long time. And I think some of that framing around back pain isn't helpful. So that isn't saying that that's the only reason for why people go on to be disabled. We, we're, we're not sure why that happens to different people. But how we currently talk about back pain and how we frame it from a testing, assessment and treatment perspective is unlikely to help people recover. And talking about the normality of pain can often be very difficult and could come across as dismissive. But really, it's trying to get to the message that a lot of us, the vast majority of us, will get back pain at some point, but it doesn't go on to give us disability or jeopardize our function in any meaningful way over a long time. So it's trying to balance those two things, I guess. How do you hear low back pain being framed by clinicians currently, and how should it be framed? Yeah, so I think, and this isn't just clinicians, I would say it's whether it be in the school, workplace, media, society in general, I would say back pain is generally framed as something that's closely related to pathology, injury, tissue damage. And because we box back pain into those categories, it makes it very hard for people to think flexibly about what else might be contributing to back pain or how else you might go about treating it. And we even see this in the questions that people get asked immediately when they've back pain. So if somebody gets back pain, the immediate question is, oh, what did you do? You know, what did you do wrong? Did you lift something differently? Did you fall? Did you bend? Did you do something that you shouldn't have done? So that's the kind of model that people automatically view back pain through in terms of somebody has done some physical or serious damage and now they're paying the price for that. I think when a person gets back pain and they're met with that reaction, it can almost sometimes create the perfect storm in terms of 
poor recovery because it's catastrophized. It's made to be seen as something that we need to worry about. And we then have this wider complex problem where people feel the need to legitimize their back pain based on some form of physical framing. And this is where stuff like imaging comes in and getting specific diagnoses for your back pain. So I think it's not just the clinical setting, but across life in general, how you get back pain, how we react to people with back pain isn't always the best in terms of giving people a good perception of what might happen and how people can recover. And why are we currently using the term low back pain as opposed to something else to describe what's going on? Low back pain or non-specific low back pain would be probably the most honest diagnosis for the vast majority of back pain. We call it that because for most types of back pain, we're unable to pinpoint why that person might have back pain. If we create an environment where people feel they need a diagnosis and they feel that tissue damage is always a problem, there's obviously a mismatch there between expectation, I need you know, a diagnosis, and then the reality of that some of this is often more complicated and complex than pinpointing one particular cause. But I still don't understand, why not image low back pain initially? Surely if you can see more, then you have a better idea of what's going on? Yeah, I guess we used to think that, and I think this is a message that is something that's really, really hard to sell to the public or to inform people about. Because it's surely if you see the spine, you see what's wrong, and that informs the treatment. The issue is when you image people early and you don't have specific reasons to. So if if a person isn't showing signs of cancer or fracture or caudoquina syndrome, what you see on imaging isn't really relevant. So we'll see a lot of stuff like disc bulges, degeneration, arthritic, arthritic changes that often present in people that don't have these symptoms. If a person doesn't have the real serious causes of back pain, like caudoquina syndrome or fractures, we're going to just manage them in the same way. It's the same stuff we're going to be recommending, advice to stay active, get back to work, get back to usual activities. But the issue is if people get imaging too early, and we see this in some of the observational data, is people can often then go off work earlier. They can be more likely to go on and get surgery and procedures. So there's something about what people see on imaging that makes people think they're less likely to recover. And this fits with some of the work I finished while I was in Sydney. We did this online trial where we randomized people with back pain and people without back pain to different labels. So common labels a person might get for back pain would be disc bulge, arthritis, degeneration. So they were three groups in our study. And we also had three groups that received labels, episode of back pain, non-specific low back pain, and lumbar sprain. And what we found consistently in our results is that the people randomized to those imaging findings that you often see when people get a scan, they're more likely to think their back pain is more serious. They feel less likely to recover. They're more likely to want second opinions and surgery in comparison to labels that include sprain or quite simple labels like non-specific back pain or, or episode of back pain, which are obviously sometimes actually debated as that we shouldn't be using labels like back pain or non-specific because people might find them dismissive. 
But really, once we start getting more specific for no reason and giving people more structural labels, it seems to increase more intentions for more medical interventions, which we don't want. What are the most common misconceptions about low back pain that you hear coming from clinicians versus coming from patients? So I guess, yeah, there's some overlap between what clinicians believe about back pain and what patients believe and what what a clinician believes can then influence what the patient believes. The first one would be floating on from what we've just spoken about is the need to diagnose somebody with back pain. So the need to give people a specific tissue-based diagnosis and the idea that this will inform treatment. And the example of this in back pain would be this seeming rejection of the term non-specific low back pain. The idea that, you know, we, we, we can't treat back pain unless we know exactly what's going on. So this real strong enthusiasm for identifying a cause of back pain. And that can often lead clinicians to send people for imaging, send people for maybe injections or surgery, but also in our models, even around exercise or our education models, they can become very dominated by very physical and pathoanatomical descriptions of of back pain. Clinicians can also feel sometimes that physical activity is dangerous for the spine. And this can be an issue because we know in the guidelines that the the biggest piece of advice is to try and get people with back pain to remain active and return to activity. But this is something we see amongst clinicians and patients that there's a caution around activity and exercise and this feeling that rest is better. And again, we saw that in the trial we did in Sydney, Sydney when we exposed people to these different labels. No matter what label we give people with back pain, whether it be episode of back pain, disc bulge, people always approached it with the feeling that it requires rest and exercise needs to be done in a very gentle or soft or light manner. So they were the words that people were were using. So the big ones are the relationship between back pain and tissue damage. So that would be a belief, I would say, for patients and clinicians. And the belief that exercise is dangerous for the spine. They're the two big ones, I think. How would you argue that the feeling that the advice to exercise is trivializing a patient's problem and within that there's a suggestion that the pain is all in their mind? I think there isn't an easy answer to that, but I think the only way that we can maybe reduce a person's feeling of being dismissed is to to listen to them. So a lot of the advice and the guidelines, whether it be about stay active or whether it be going back to work, Doing that really cold and giving that advice really clinically can sound very dismissive, for sure. But I think if we put a lot of time into the clinician-patient relationship, listening to a person's concerns, listening to a person's views about their pain and their real worries, and actually gaining their trust over time that you're doing what you think is best for this person and you are looking after them in terms of ensuring that they will get better. 
I think if you communicate it in a way that people just need to get on with it and that their fear and their concerns are not important, that message will always be seen as something dismissive. If we focus on our middle-aged patient sitting in front of us in the clinic complaining of low back pain, how can clinicians empower that patient to take control of their low back pain based on what we've been talking about? This will be quite individual. What a clinician might do to empower one patient might be different to another. I guess the first move would be how can we discuss or set up some strategies that that person at home can do to actively manage their back pain. So number one, we might first start with items or disability or activities that are currently disempowering a patient with back pain. So for example, if they're somebody that's very afraid to walk or they're not able to work and that's something they want to do, our activities then would need to focus in around those goals if we want to get people empowered in certain circumstances. Also, active strategies at home, the best ones to pursue are ones that people will adhere to. And they're most likely activities that people enjoy. So it could be a form of exercise. It could be a form of a relaxation. It could be getting more sleep. It could be interacting more with friends. I reckon clinicians would need to get quite creative here and really think broadly because really you're looking at things that people enjoy and that are healthy for life. So it could be anything from exercise, sleep, social connection, looking after a person's stress and mental health. So that will really vary. I think the second one that I would say for empowerment, and I think this is particularly important for people that have pain for a long time, is how we frame self-management and having people look at self-management as a realistic model by which they manage their back pain instead of an intervention or cure. So sometimes the way we set up self-management interventions is we set them up in a way that patients need to go away alone, do these treatments, and then hopefully that helps them. Whereas I think from an empowerment perspective, we need to be communicating self-management in a way that look, these are strategies that are good for a person to do at home. However, it's very likely that you're going to get an episode of back pain again. It's likely that you'll get a flare-up. And self-management then changes from a model of how to ensure a setback doesn't jeopardize your life in the long term from a work or function perspective, but that you're not aiming for a cure from self-management. And I think This is something where I think current trials on back pain maybe do a bit of a disservice to clinicians and patients because they want clinicians to give patients self-management strategies. But I think it's unrealistic to leave patients self-manage alone and not have contact with the clinician in terms of checking on them if they get another flare-up or checking in to ensure that things are going okay. So I think having a realistic view of empowerment, along with a person having access to a healthcare provider they can trust, is very important over the long term for a person to feel empowered. Because when they get that flare up again, 
it can be it could be as simple as it, as a, an email or a phone call to check in on a person with back pain and i think or for the person with back pain to check with the clinician to just get more reassured and that's something we're not doing at the moment i think we frame self management as this really effective intervention that should work versus a model of care to help people approach back pain when it comes back again and then from an empowerment perspective i think it's very important that people have access to information so access to as much palatable or easy to understand information about treatments and misconceptions about back pain that they are then able to make a decision about management but the main one i think would be active strategies to manage but also having this continuity of care between a trusting clinician and a trusting patient where they work together over the long term to ensure a person is staying empowered particularly when they get a flare up among clinicians there is an increased awareness of the importance of addressing psychosocial factors of low back pain but you think the psychosocial factors are misunderstood i think so and i think maybe there's a high chance they can be misunderstood and the the issue with that is maybe then we're not able to optimize our treatment and assessment properly maybe we're lacking confidence maybe we feel these factors are in the domain of other healthcare professionals and not within our remit so an example of this would be the idea that psychological factors or psychosocial factors are forms of mental health problems or mental illness problems so because of that they don't fall within musculoskeletal practice and that can be true so if people present with certain phobias or very severe post traumatic distress disorders or depression we need to know how to screen for these and refer them on to a suitable professional however lots of the stuff we see with back pain whether it be fear of bending the spine whether it be distress over what we see on eating are very normal factors that really fall within what a gp can do and what a physio can do so lots of the common psychological factors are things we can actually treat and assess within our practice another issue that may be problematic is the idea that if psychological factors are relevant we somehow need to change the treatments we're currently doing and start learning new treatments so for example if you're a physio and you're very comfortable with delivering exercise which would be traditionally seen as a physical treatment some physios might think they need to get better at something like cbt to get an effect on psychological factors but what we see is that if we compare these treatments traditional physical treatments like exercise with psychological treatments like cbt we don't see any difference between these treatments in terms of pain and disability but also when we examine how physical treatments like exercise exert an influence on pain and disability much of the time it can be due to increasing a person's confidence in themselves to manage it can be through reducing psychological distress and reducing fear so very physical treatments can exert their effect through changing psychological factors so that means we should focus on optimizing the treatments we have and framing them in a way 
that they're more likely to have a positive effect on a person's psychological status instead of having a negative effect. And I think another pitfall or maybe an issue is seeing patients according to subgroups so that some patients are psychological patients and some people are physical patients. So we start to divide these categories in our head into these mutually exclusive categories. But what we see is that these factors are more interacting and they play with each other depending on the individual to influence a person's pain and disability. So for example, a psychological factor like fear of movement could then impact a person's physical movement. For example, if they're afraid of bending, it would be reasonable to think that we'd see differences in how they bend. So instead of seeing physical and psychological treatments as something that are really distinct, we should be seeing how they work and combine with each other over time. Mary, I think that's a great place to end it. But if our listeners want to continue this conversation and learn more about low back pain, where should they go? So I go to the Lancet Low Back Pain series that was published in March 2018, and it's three papers, and it really gives a nice overview of causes of back pain, treatments for back pain, and future actions. So it's really, really nice. If people want to follow me, I'm on Twitter, maybe too much, but my handle is Mary O'Keefe007, and I often share articles about back pain and different resources. Thank you for listening to this BGSM podcast with Dr. Mary O'Keefe. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends or leave us a review and connect through our social media channels. You can listen to a new clinically relevant BGSM podcast every Friday, and there is no better place to find them than on the BGSM app. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.